I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Another day, another chat show, Daniel, and oh boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to cover here. Speaking into my microphone, check, check. Can I get a mic check, David? Check one, two, check one, two. Ten, four, good buddy. Yeah, I guess we have a little bit to talk about. I don't know where to start. There's uh, been a lot of strikes going on throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and other forms of resistance. One that you might not think of is, is there's been a lot of activity among grad students at universities fighting for livable wages and, and better contracts for themselves. And a notable case going on right now, hashtag UCSC strike. That's uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, who just fired 54 TAs for striking for better conditions for themselves. And when you're talking about labor struggles, maybe people don't think about university environments because, let's face it, a lot of people who go to universities are coming from privileged backgrounds, so maybe we don't see it as part of the labor struggle, but it absolutely is. There's grad students all over the country who are being forced to work long hours so that they can keep their scholarships, maintain their opportunity for higher education, and usually they're not paid very well. So the grad students at UC Santa Cruz were fighting because they're getting paid $17,000 to basically work a full-time job in the fourth most expensive housing city in the entire world the number one worst housing market in the United States. And when you have to work a full-time job at a university, it means you don't have time to work another job so that you can pay your bills. And when you're getting paid that little, it means a lot of these students have to take on additional jobs, which means they can't finish on time. You know, so it is important to recognize the struggles going on at our universities across the country. I never did grad school, Daniel. I know a lot of friends have, and... uh... (laughs) I'm sorry for all of y'all currently in grad school. I'm sorry for all of those who have suffered through it. But uh, that shit is brutal. And especially if you're doing TA work on top of that, if you're actually making the university function, grad students do so much work to prop up this university system, which is inherently exploitative from from tuition to the whole academia world. Uh, We'll get into this at some point. I really want to do a show about academia and just what a clusterfuck it is. Like I said, I've never been a grad student. But I have done some adjunct work as a professor. I've done guest lecturer things. I was actually supposed to substitute in for a professor friend of mine on Monday, but I got sick. And that shit does not pay at all. I have friends who basically have to work two or three jobs in addition to their full-time grad work, like you mentioned, just to make their bottom line meet. And this is an institution that's supposed to exist to give these future thinkers and academics the resources and time, and that's the key thing there, time to actually do the research that we want to see to forward the knowledge of all humanity. But instead, we're having them being beaten down by the system. They burn out, they drop out. And instead of actually making the radical change that they're supposed to be doing, we just suck these people dry, like the vampires that is the academia system. You said you got sick, David, and that impacted your ability to work? Yes, I see where you go with this, and we'll, we'll lead on to this later. That's interesting. Yeah, anyway, just wanted to throw that out there as maybe something not on most people's radar, but definitely something to um, 
look towards if you if you can. Well, if we're doing that, then I'd also like to take a moment to point people's attention to the indigenous resistance that's happening in Canada right now of the various native people who are doing all sorts of badass direct actions and other movements to try and block some of this horrible oil pipelines and tar sand stuff that Canadian government just seems to want to push through while claiming that they're defending the earth, which we all know that assholes like Trudeau don't actually give a shit when it comes to the bottom line. So salute to all these people who are risking their lives, blocking trains, shutting down pipelines, monkey wrenching construction equipment in order to try and keep not only their home clean and free from all of this, but uh, the entire world too, because as we've talked about numerous times on this show, assaults on the climate are assaults on all of us. So uh, salute to these fellow climate defenders. Resistance, which is actually having a dramatic effect, right? And so we should never believe the narrative that we don't have power or that voting is the only way to exercise our power. These people who have been blockading trains have absolutely ground certain aspects of the economy to a halt. So what, what else do you want to talk about today, David? I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in, in the news these past couple of weeks. Uh, there are heightening tensions in Syria between Turkey and other nations there. There is a semi-fascist attempt at the beginning of a genocide in India. There's locusts all over the Middle East and Africa. Uh, disasters all around the world. But uh, there's a couple things I think we want to narrow in on uh, for at least this week. And we'll, we'll maybe tackle some of these other subjects in upcoming episodes. But uh, I think we had some Border Patrol updates to start with. Yeah, I've got one story that I want to highlight. And I've got a little thing, too. You've got a little story. I've got a little story. So it's show and tell at Ashes Ashes this week. And, and I feel like trigger warnings are appropriate, maybe for all of our shows that we've just been forgetting. Depression, trigger warning. But uh, my story involves typical law enforcement BS and the murder of a child. So keep that in mind. So here's the story. It's pretty short. A Mexican boy named Sergio Hernandez was killed by a U.S. Border Patrol agent while the boy was on Mexican soil. He was with his friends at the time when this happened, and every story has two sides, right? So, of course, we have the side of the story from the boy and his family, which is he and some of his other friends were playing a game that they normally play where they run up to the U.S.-Mexico fence, they touch it, and they run back. They're on the Mexican side. And the other side to the story is, according to the U.S. Border Patrol agent, the boy threw a rock at him. Now, both of these stories end with the Border Patrol agent shooting the boy in the face and killing him. Now, this case was brought to the Supreme Court. It's called Hernandez v. Mesa. Mesa is the name of the Border Patrol agent. And the Hernandez family wants to sue the Border Patrol agent for justice understandably. But the court said no. And their rationale was twofold. Number one, the Supreme Court of the United States says, well, look, this is uh, on the border. It's a political issue. Uh, we shouldn't give people the right to sue immigration agents because, well, you know, this should be solved by diplomacy. And then their second point was, look, immigration, uh, you know, these agents are on the front lines of national security. They're doing important work here. If, if they could be held accountable for this type of thing, then it might undermine their work. And what's interesting, too, is that in the opinion of, of the court, 
They cite this 1971 case called Bivens versus six unknown named agents in which the court at the time decided that if a law enforcement agent abuses his or her power, we, the public, deserve justice and should be able to sue those officers. But in an unfortunate turn of uh, history, almost immediately after this decision, the Supreme Court shifted um, to the right and has blocked every, almost every attempt related to justice for victims of police brutality. And Justice Clarence Thomas went so far as to write that, you know, maybe it's time we threw out this Bivens rationale altogether. Why should the public be able to sue law enforcement agents for, for the injustice? You know, that doesn't seem to fit the American way of thought anymore. So that's Thomas. And in Alito's opinion, he's basically pretty clear in his contempt for the ability of victims to sue law enforcement when they breach their power. And according to reporter Ian Milheiser, quote, the Supreme Court's decision in Hernandez transforms the Bill of Rights into a paper tiger in many cases involving law enforcement overreach, and it foreshadows a future where Bivens is overruled in its entirety, end quote. This case is so tragic, David, and it's, it's infuriating that a Border Patrol agent can just shoot this child in the face for doing nothing wrong, and then our courts say, well, you know, we're not going to hold them accountable. And it reminds me of a point you made uh, in a show not long ago where you were basically saying, what is a right? You know, we have this Bill of Rights and we have this Constitution that tries to say what we as citizens of this country deserve, what, what our rights are. But what's interesting is that in defining what rights we get as citizens, we're not so much as granting rights as we are taking away the right for everyone else. And that opens the door to deny rights to even U.S. citizens, because once you operate within this framework that acknowledges that rights only apply to certain people, and, and the reason why I bring this up is because obviously you get a bunch of people responding and comments towards this case that, well, why should we allow a Mexican citizen to sue a U.S. agent? You know, they're not, they're not a citizen of, of America. They don't deserve that right, even though their child was murdered in cold blood. They don't have our rights. But when we're operating within this, this idea that rights only apply to certain people, then you can pretty much justify exceptions, qualifiers, and rules to any right, even towards U.S. citizens. Like, every citizen has a right to vote. Oh, but you went to jail? You don't count. We're not talking about you. You know, every citizen has a right to, to vote, but, oh, you're a black man from Alabama who owes $4 to the state? You can't vote. You know, that actually happened uh, in 2018, David. Alabama blocked this man's attempt to vote for the governor because he owed $4 to the state. So, you know, every citizen has the right to life unless you're a black boy named Emmett Till or you're a Salvadoran refugee or you're a Native American or you're a Mexican boy with a rock in your hand. You know, I bring this case up because I just think that this is, this is bullshit. You know what I'm saying, David? And when I hear stories like this, it makes me angry. And I'm tired of this gun control debate we're having in this country. I'm tired of the Democrat position on how we need to stop citizens from owning guns. You know, that's fine. You know, that's all good and well. But we need to get our priorities straight because it's not my fellow neighbors I'm scared of. It's not, you know, old people having rifles in their basement that I'm afraid of. Who are the ones getting away with murder in this country? I say we disarm the police dismantle ICE, disband Border Patrol, 
Take guns away from the police. Take guns out of the hands of all these cowards who are running wild in our streets, murdering children, murdering black bodies, kidnapping migrant children, because the government is not prosecuting them. The courts will not let us sue them. You know, I don't care if my neighbors have guns until we get the true violence off the streets. And I'm tired of the, the, the culture behind this military fake Spartan mindset talking about holding the line and courage and discipline and all this talk about bravery and sacrifice. Yet you're so scared of a brown child with a rock that you can't help but shoot him in the face. If y'all are so brave, why do you need to hide behind your badges, your tanks, your guns and your full body armor? And with no consequences for the violence that you carry out on innocent people. You want to talk about guns in this country? Fine, let's take them away from the police. And then we can talk about the violence in this country or whatever's left of it. I mean, it sounds like a crazy controversial idea, Daniel. But when you get right down to it, in fact, isn't a lot of nations really do have disarmed police. I mean, there are a couple of units that have uh, weapons available to them if there's an extraordinary circumstance. but. The day-to-day officer on the beat or the traffic cop or whatever it is, they don't have guns. They don't even have access to guns. It's not in their car or whatever. If they want to, they can't even do it. So that option of murdering someone in the street isn't available to them. And uh, to, to go to your point about where this real risk lies, uh, if we eliminate suicides from, from gun deaths, and we just ignore that figure, um, which is a separate problem, I think, then the vast majority of gun deaths are from domestic partners killing their domestic partners. So the first thing we should talk about when it comes to gun control is taking weapons away from domestic abusers. But unfortunately, as we found, uh, 40% and over of police officers are domestic abusers. So you're already talking about disarming the police, which is why this, the most effective possible form of gun control, is not seriously discussed in any sort of government circles. But if we go farther from that, If it's not someone you know, what is the next most likely group of people to kill you with a gun, Daniel? It's police officers by a huge amount. And then only after that is it strangers. And then after strangers, it's finally mass murderers. But the last one is the one that gets all the focus and all the attention heaped onto it. So if you do want to make meaningful gun control change in this country, you take weapons away from abusers, you take them away from the police. And as far as I'm concerned, at least at this point, those words are more or less synonymous. So, I I mean, I think you're on to something. And it sounds crazy, but any sort of meaningful conversation about gun control in the United States has to start with disarming the police. Yeah, it's it's just total bullshit that this keeps happening. Why is it that the mass shootings are the only type of violence that we fixate on? Is it just because... So many of the privileged people in this country can actually relate to that. But, you know, when when the police are are murdering black people on the street, the privileged classes say, well, that would never happen to me. When it's a Mexican boy on, on the other side of our border, then our privileged classes say, well, that would never happen to my child because my child lives in the United States and has those rights. When are we going to recognize that the violence being carried out against marginalized people is not okay? And it's it's harming all of us. Well, I mean, this is a, a whole week go down, and I'm sure at some point when the next gun tragedy pops up in the news, uh, we will maybe finally get to that gun episode. I don't want to hit that now because there's so much more to cover. But these are important things to have just 
sort of percolating in the back of your head. There's one more story I just very briefly want to mention in terms of Border Patrol before we jump on to this last topic, and that is we keep talking about the Oregon Pipe National Monument, Daniel, that beautiful, pristine part of the Sonoran Desert, the U.S.-Mexico border, um, and an important cultural site for many of the native tribes that live along this region. We've talked about the huge amounts of environmental destruction that the construction of the wall has had along this area. Well, not to be outdone, Border Patrol and the construction companies that they've hired to help them construct this wall uh, have invited a bunch of journalists and uh, other people out to the organ pipe to see them blow up part of it in order to construct the wall. If it's, if it's not enough that they're draining the water table, it's not enough that they're destroying all of this pristine natural wildlife, building roads through it all and slicing it in half, causing untold environmental destruction, they are literally laying explosives in this region and detonating them and inviting people to come and watch like it's a fucking space launch. That, I think, really gets down to some of these same core points that you're talking about, Daniel, where you have these organizations which are completely sick all the way down to their culture. And this is not something you can necessarily just fix through regulations or fix through, uh, oh yeah, we're going to try and, and, and hire somebody new to lead it. No, these, these organizations at their very deepest level are sick, and so all the actions they take are sick. And this mockery of people's concern about what they're doing by turning it into a press extravaganza I think really gets to the heart of how they just don't give a fuck about anything except what it is that they've decided to do. And they take that hubris that they've gotten from the protection the federal government, from the courts offer them, and are just laughing at us at this point saying, what the fuck are you going to do about it? We're going to blow up this beautiful area. We're going to kill these kids. And you're just going to have to watch us do it because tough shit, which is why in the end, not only do we need to be talking about disarming, but we need to be talking about disbanding. And that I feel like, at least in terms of organizations like ICE, are the only possible step of starting to root out this rot that has taken hold of such a deep interior part of, of the soul of this nation. Yeah. Disarm, defund, disband. That's three D words. And David and Daniel's two more, baby. But don't, don't defund or disband David <laughs> and Daniel. Uh, we're working on that ourselves. Um. Well, I, like I said, I don't want to get too caught up on this border wall stuff. There's always new horrible updates, and I don't want to get too lost on them because we have another new horrible update to uh, talk about right here in that the uh, unfolding health crisis around the world that is COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, and, and the pandemic that is starting right before our eyes. So. I want, I want to spend a little time talking about this, and I specifically want to do this in a chat episode, not one of our usual ones, uh, though there's definitely enough content to go into a usual one. But I feel like the part of the difference between the chat episodes and our, our deep dives is uh, some of the rigor that we try and go into in the deep dives, where um, we only really try and source the most hard facts and, and build off of that. And part of the problem with the COVID stuff and why I haven't been talking about it so far is that there's still a lot of things up in the air. Um, luckily, we just had a WHO report come out that I can use as some sort of hard baseline numbers. But fact of the matter is, we won't know a lot of the actual numbers, a lot of what happened in places like China and Iran for probably years. This thing is very quickly changing, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit how and why in a moment. So I feel like discussing it in the looser, less rigorous chat format gives me mm. a little more leeway with 
facts that we might have that might not ultimately be right. But I, I, I am trying to use the most accurate numbers I can find, and I'm trying to be rigorous about that. But it's just there's so many question marks that even the published figures, researchers aren't sure if, if they're reliable just yet. There's a lot of variables here that we're still trying to control as we try and grasp this uh, unfolding pandemic. So um, let's talk about this. And uh, to, to pull up another one of those trigger warnings, Daniel, if you are the type of person who gets uncontrollably anxious about things like this, you are probably better off sitting out uh, this part of this episode because it's not going to do you any benefit. But there are a lot of important things I want to go over. Uh, we can't have a show about collapse and not address this. Well, how are we going to record if I, uh, if I go into the other room? Oh, are, are you one of those, those people, Daniel, who does it keep you up at night? I'll, I, I'll be honest. I was reading a lot so, of stuff the other night and I had some trouble sleeping. Yeah, I, I've got to get out of the habit of, of like catching up on stuff at night because I find that I also can't sleep or I'll get angry and anxious. You know, for some reason, there's something about like laying in bed at night when it's dark and I'm just like, the floods are coming, the viruses <laughs> are coming, the fascism is coming. A hundred percent. And it's been extra bad for me because like I said, I've been sick with, with an unrelated flu all week. So I've done a lot of laying around in bed and uh, I've had some very stressful dreams from all these horrible things we read all the time. So uh, if you value your health, um, maybe sit this next section out. With that said, let's dig into this. So coronavirus, COVID-19, I'm going to call it both throughout this episode, but no that uh, coronavirus is just a class of viruses. It covers a wide variety of different infections from uh, SARS to MERS to uh, various types of the cold. We know that this specific type of uh, virus is novel COVID-19 in COV-19. That is the name that is being used right now. But for the sake of uh, just not having to say COVID-19 over and over again, I'm going to switch between that and coronavirus. When I'm saying coronavirus, I am referring, of course, to COVID-19. Uh, what, what do you know about the virus right now, Daniel? What have you heard? Because I have been following this since uh, the beginning of January uh, because of some things I saw and I started digging into it. I was really following MERS for a while. So this is uh, another one of my perverse fascinations. But I guess it really only entered a lot of uh, public consciousness in uh, late January, mid-February. But as something that was happening in China, and now only recently have a lot of Americans woken up and say, oh, shit, this, this might be coming here. Well, it's already been here for weeks, but we'll get to that. So uh, what do you know about it, Daniel, as somebody who I don't think follows this as obsessively as, uh, as I do? Well, and especially knowing how obsessively you've been following it, I've kind of, well, you know, I don't need to follow this. David's got it. But what I do know is that people are concerned about it because, and that's how I knew this was, okay, this is kind of serious because I'm getting emails. From, I got an email from a family member that was like, hey, check out this article. And it's this article from the American conservative about stock up on everything because trade's going to grind to a halt in America, relies on so much from China, from paper clips to medicine. Stock um, up so, on paper clips. Yeah, stock up on paper clips. I also know about it because I've heard farmers in this region talk about it just, you know, indirectly. How is this going to impact things? And I have a friend who works for a company in Boston that manufactures a product that they ship to people all around the world. And they've been getting a lot of orders for their product. But the, the way they assemble it is from machined parts that they import from China. 
and they can't get it anymore. So they've been scrambling to find uh, machine shops in the U.S. who can do this, and there's not as many, and they're twice as expensive. So it's impacting their small business pretty significantly. So I know it's having an effect, and I don't know much about what the virus does, who's at risk. Um, I just know that there's a lot of worried people out there. Yeah, and this is all stuff we'll address over the next section, and I'm going to breeze through a, a lot of this uh, because there's so much to cover, but, you know, whatever, it's a chat episode. So uh, just real quick to get some basic stuff out of the way, COVID-19, it's a new disease that seems probably to have appeared in China sometime in December of 2019. Uh, it, it looks like it evolved from a disease in bats, and it made the jump from bats to humans at some point. Again, this it probably showed up in December, but it's sort of hard to exactly tell timelines. Uh, they look at the evolution of the genome to sort of try and nail down this this timeline, and that actually will come up into play with something that's happening right now. I'll talk about later. But the disease is interesting in that a lot of the more dangerous coronaviruses, like SARS, which has about a ten percent mortality, and MERS, which has a nearly forty percent mortality. MERS being the one that's less known, but it's Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, which is very deadly, but seems to be really bad at uh, actually transmitting itself. SARS is better at, at uh, this virality, but um, is less deadly and seems to be heavily impacted by summers. And so we, ha we got control on that. But um, COVID-19 is a very virulent disease. It's very easy to infect people with it because of a number of interesting reasons. Have you ever played that pandemic game, Daniel? The board game or the the game that I can play on my web browser. The, the web browser one. A long time ago, but yes. So like Pandemic, for those of you who haven't played it, and it's very popular right now, China actually removed it from app stores over there because too many people are playing it. But uh, it, it is a simulation of the world. You have a virus and you can evolve the virus to try and infect and ultimately kill every single person on Earth. And um, anybody who's played the game knows, and there's a lot of unrealistic things about the game. Anybody who's played the game knows that the best way to spread a virus or a bacteria or a parasite, whatever it is that you're playing in the game, is to make it airborne, is to make it spread by sneezes and other bodily fluids, and also for it to have very little symptoms for as long as possible. Because as soon as people start recognizing that they're sick, then they start taking actions to shut down your fictional virus. So it seems like this virus is uh, one of those lucky or where unlucky diseases in that there is a, about a two week long incubation period where you are infectious, but not showing any symptoms beyond maybe some very minor cold like things. And this is why this virus has sort of exploded because if during this time you're going around, you're sneezing, um, you know, you're touching your face, then touching something else, you're spreading your viral load all over the place, but you aren't aware that you're doing that until, you know, two weeks later when all of a sudden all these symptoms explode and then it's very obvious that you're sick with something. So you start trying to prevent yourself from spreading this. That is why this virus has spread so much. At this point, we have around 90,000 official cases. About 3,000 people have died officially, though both those numbers are certainly lower than the actuality. And what's interesting is just how quickly this exploded in numbers. And, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about why this is different than the flu. People, and I was one of these people when this first popped up, saying, oh yeah, you know, the flu kills 40,000, 80,000 Americans a year, depending on how bad the year is. So whatever, you know, this, is, this has killed a couple thousand Chinese people. 
um, which is a tragedy, but, you know, it's just not a big thing yet. That's wrong. I was wrong about that, and I'll talk about why. But, uh, so, this disease, it doesn't show a lot of symptoms. Most people really only show a fever for these first two weeks. 88% of people have a fever. Um, dry cough is very common, 68% of people. A lot of people are exhausted, 38%. Expectoration of mucus when coughing, 33%. Shortness of breath, 18%. Sore throat, 14%. Headaches, 14%. Muscle aches, 14%. Chills are also common. And then only like 5-4% of people experience vomiting, stuffy nose, or diarrhea. And if you just have a runny nose, don't worry, that's not a symptom of COVID-19. Uh, you can put your hypochondria away for the moment. So it feels just like a sort of uh, like a, a bad cough for most people. And they have a, a low fever, but that's something most people aren't testing themselves for. They're just like, oh, you know, I've got a little bit of a cold, which is why this is so good at spreading. It has almost no symptoms besides the cough, but the cough aerosolizes the virus, launches into the air. And then it gets other people sick or it sticks on stuff where it can last for a few days until someone else touches it, touches their face. And now they're also spreading the virus. So it's very good at spreading. And the concern is that after this incubation period has ended and that now the virus is actually causing a problem to the person, this is where things get interesting. So the flu causes about 0.2 to 2%, depending on the year, of people to have to seek hospital attention for their symptoms. Okay. Uh-huh. COVID-19 causes 20% of people to have to seek hospitalization. Mm. And this is the actual critical number. And a lot of people focus on mortality. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this figure is unheard of on something that is this easily catchable um, and spread so easy. This is the real disaster. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But I'm just going to blow past this number for now. Well, I was just going to say that's interesting. I've actually never thought of that as being an outcome of a virus that when I think of the flu, I just think of people get pretty sick and, you know, they're in bed for a week, but yeah, hospitalization or lying rates. on the bathroom floor, <laughs> covered in sweat, wondering, like, if they have the strength to lift themselves up. That wasn't oh, me this that, week. That seems pretty specific, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But I never thought of measuring, like, the percentage of those who get infected with their need for hospitalization. And I just, I guess that just means it's so severe. Right. So what ultimately it causes is a sort of pneumonia-like symptom in your lungs where you have difficulty breathing. 15% uh, of people require oxygen-enriched air, and 5% of people have to go into respirators in order to just stay alive. So those are two things that you can't do outside of a uh, hospital environment. Um, though I guess technically you can buy oxygen-richers um, off Amazon or other things for, you know, a few hundred dollars, but that's outside of most people's uh, medical knowledge and also financial resources. Nobody's going to try and, you know, buy a $500 oxygen enricher just to keep in their house and the off chance that they get COVID-19. At least no reasonable or sane person would. I have seen in the prepper community a bunch of people buying these, but those people have severe anxiety problems that they cope with uh, via consumerism. But that aside, uh, this is why this disease is interesting, because most nations have the hospital capacity for 0.1 to about 0.8% of their population to be in a hospital bed at any one time. In a disease like this, where it is very infectious, so the, the infectivity, the R number, is still bouncing around, and uh, we're still seeing estimates. This is how many people um, each infection infects, basically is between, you know, three and seven. So 
it's very infectious. That means there's going to be a lot of people infected. There are estimates that if this is not properly contained, about 20% to as high as 60% of the population could be infected. And so you compare that 20% figure, and then 20% of those people will need hospitalization. So that is 4% of a population, of a nation's population. Meanwhile, a nation has, what was that point? China has, for example, 0.4% of their population in available hospital beds. But those hospital beds aren't just sitting empty all the time. They are also filled with people who are already sick for other things. A lot of hospitals operate at about 80% capacity. So you're talking about 20% spare capacity at these hospitals that are already a single small fracturing of the available hospital capacity of, of a nation. So when you're discussing a disease that causes 20% hospitalization, you are discussing something that is a disaster for a healthcare system. And the problem is, is that the mortality rate of this disease in China, there was a WHO report that just came out today, and the, the figure that's been quoted in the news is 2%. Um, and that was an old figure based on um, some just people spitballing basically from release numbers. But the WHO today, as of recording this, released a report, and we'll link it on the website, that shows the mortality rate is 3.6%. But that's 3.6% when there is hospitalization available. When there is no hospitalization available because these hospitals are overflowing and full, then that figure rises dramatically because, again, 20% people need to be in a hospital to survive when they get this disease. So you can see how this figure can explode if too many people get infected. So managing this disease is going to be about managing the healthcare system. But as we're increasingly finding out and as the Democratic primary and ultimately the presidential election in the United States is heavily focused on is that the healthcare system in the United States and in a lot of nations around the world fucking sucks. Uh, there is, for a variety of reasons, not enough capacity and there's not enough access. And we'll get to this in a little bit for people. So what you have right now is a perfect storm. And so don't get lost in that 2% mortality figure that everyone keeps quoting or that actual 3.6% mortality figure. And it varies from nation to nation in Iran right now. Um, we're not even sure what is happening. Uh, it's really hard to get a lot of information, but it's been estimated that mortality in Iran is at 7% and it might be higher. Um, in, in countries that are doing a really good job cracking down on this, like Korea, um, that figure is less than 1%. But we'll see as, as the number of cases begins to explode. This has the potential to really fuck things up. And this is why governmental leaders, business leaders have freaked out about this. And so please don't get lost in that, that mortality figure. Especially, you know, if you're young, mortality is about 0.2% on this, which is about the same as the flu. So a lot of young people are not concerned to say, oh, if I get sick, whatever. The people who really have to watch out are, are uh, 60 and up, where uh, mortality is 4% to 15% if you're over 80. But it's not just these, this mortality that's the danger. Again, it's the hospitalization and the economic knock-on effects, which I'm going to get to in a second. We get so lost in these figures and, you know, how many people have died, that, that question, that we lose sight of where the actual dangers in pandemics are. And that's, that's why I wanted to focus on this on this show, because there's a lot of things, especially in nations like the United States, where the vast majority of people are living in a sort of economic precarity that isn't necessarily the case in China or in South Korea or Italy, where there are more robust social protection systems for people. This could kill a lot of people who never even get sick. 
and I'll explain why. That's a lot, David. Um, yeah, the economic piece definitely good to hit on, but I, I just have a question. So you mentioned the healthcare system of the United States not being really up to the task at the moment, but I feel like I've heard a lot of reports that governments are also botching the response. I mean, I've certainly heard this in terms yeah. of Iran potentially covering this up so that it can protect an election, not to scare people, but that leading to more infections because people were not properly educated. Mm-hmm. And then in the United States, we're hearing, uh-oh, Mike Pence is in charge of this and he hates science. So that's not good. I mean, what, what do you think? Is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'm going to get to a little bit of the why maybe in a moment, but you're right. The governmental response, uh, at least initially in almost every nation, has been disastrous, including in China. There was a lot of denial and blockading and refusal. And then finally, uh, the system that China has right now is incredibly effective at quarantining and containing this disease, but it's coming at a huge economic cost that might ultimately cost uh, just as much as if this disease had run rapid. So uh, it's about balancing these responses, and no one is entirely sure where that is. More authoritarian responses are better at containing the disease, but it comes at a cost, of course, of freedom and of uh, all sorts of, of other questions. Singapore has done a really excellent job at containing it. Korea has, has responded very honestly with their testing and trying to, to figure out the disaster that's, that's happened there, exacerbated in part by what I love the the fact that the media calls this, and it is a cult. There's a cult in, in Korea uh, where several members got sick, and then they would come together to these mega churches and, and you know, eat from the same things and touch each other, and they would all get sick. And uh, the, the media is like, this cult, this cult, this cult, to blame it on. But honestly, the descriptions of this cult and the things they believe in and the way they've run their services sound exactly like mega churches. And uh, other religious experiences that I've seen growing up in the South. Um, so it's really funny that in South Korea, you know, the media calls it a cult. But the fact that, you know, a huge portion of the United States uh, populace, the evangelicals, would just consider this a normal weekend at the church. That's, but that, that's another side. But yes, the governmental response has been disastrous and has not helped anything. Uh, Iran, uh, again, it's really impossible to tell what's happening over there. A lot of their ministers are sick and have been killed by the health minister in Iran has died. Uh, one of the health ministers overseeing the seas in China has died. The uh, government leader responsible for the uh, COVID-19 response in South Korea has killed himself because of his botching of this handling. There is disaster at all levels and uh, people are paying the price with their lives as well as with the economic outputs of their nations. And then some countries are just in total denial about it. So Japan, with the Olympics upcoming, are basically trying to stick its head in their sand so as not to hurt themselves in the potential of this economic, what they hope will be a boon to them. So, fuck the Olympics. And other nations like the United States have botched it so incredibly badly that it almost feels intentional. And so I guess I'll talk about that a little bit We knew this was coming. We had plenty of forewarning. So the CDC had a test made up so they were ready to test people, but decided first off that they were only going to test people traveling directly from uh, affected regions in China. And they were only going to test in a few cities, the so-called Sentinel City program. And then there was that, that cruise ship where everybody got sick and we brought them back. Several people that we knew were sick. And we just sort of released them. The State Department and the CDC had a big 
butting heads against that. And then it turned out that most of the tests the CDC sent out were actually no good. Uh, there was a step in it that was wrong, and so they actually didn't give you results, so they just froze testing. Up until a couple weeks ago, maybe even two weeks ago, the United States had only tested 400 people total, give or take. And now we're finding out that the disease has been in the United States for at least six weeks, probably longer. And we will likely see that the failures of this testing program, the failures to actually get our shit into gear and, and, and triangulate where this is coming in and, and how to respond to it, are going to bite us in the ass in another four to six weeks when this spread of infections which again, most people are fairly mild with it. They don't need any hospitalization. They don't even really realize they have it because for most people, the symptoms aren't that bad, which is why it's so good at spreading. We won't really know this is a problem until hospitals start getting overwhelmed in certain regions. And that's when things will start getting out of control. And that's when the deaths, as we mentioned, will start kicking in. And then the, the government responds as well to trying to control these regions after they've already been disastrously affected. This is part of the problem. Governments it's really hard to look forward and stop these things cold without completely destroying your economy. So you're trying to balance, how can I let everybody move around and, and, and commerce to occur and not also let the disease move around? The ultimate response is that you can't. And that's sort of why COVID-19 and uh, pandemics in general are failures of, um, of capitalism, of globalism, of the healthcare system that we have and the way that we prioritize certain parts of our economy over the mm -hmm. livelihood of individuals, and also how we've made ourselves incredibly fragile with the way that we spread out our supply chains around the world right. and disconnected people from their local uh, sustainability. And, and we'll get to all of this. I'm trying yeah. to jam all this stuff in here. But yes, it's been a disaster from the governmental side. Uh, we are now finally getting to the point where um, China is making millions of tests uh, every week. Uh, they're capable of testing something like 1.6 million. Um, either a day or a week, and I'm sorry that I don't remember which because that's a big difference, but they have a lot of tests at this point. The United States, a lot of local areas have decided to just say, fuck you, CDC, we're going to do it ourselves. California's working on their own tests. Uh, New York City just got FDA approval to start developing its own tests. The CDC has finally fixed that broken step on the tests that we do have, so we should see an increase in testing. The, the parts are beginning to move, but uh, the response has been disastrous, and it certainly hasn't helped that the president is absolutely trying to deny at every point that anything is wrong because it keeps hurting the stock market. And he bases his entire success as a president on the stock market, of which he also personally benefits from. But very likely that if the stock market goes down, he will not be reelected as president. Um, never mind the fact that the economy, the real economy, is not doing so well anyway. The media and people's perception and their consumer confidence is based on the performance of the stock market for whatever fucking reason. And so if that number goes down, and it has dramatically in the past week, then basically no president under a bad economy ends up being reelected. So this is all at this point about controlling the narrative and controlling the stock market price. So we're going to see a lot of Fed juicing of that, even beyond what it's already been in order to try and, and keep that inflated for at least the next couple of months. Let's maybe uh, transition from there to these economic effects. And you started talking about them a little bit, Daniel, with this supply chain stuff. And, and that is absolutely yeah. the first thing that, that we've recognized here. Well, to your point about a fragile economy, I, I think it's interesting that it seems like the same people always saying, you know, free trade, free trade, private business this, private business that. 
are the same people always saying national security, national security, national security. But how can we as a nation or any nation be secure? How can any place on this earth be secure when it depends completely on supply chains that reach halfway around the world? And I went to a, a conference recently on farmland protection, and I was pretty shocked to find out that here in New England, this, this place that I thought had an old history of farming and land protection, which it does, still only produces 5% of the food that we consume. And it just so happens that in terms of food supply, we get a majority of our food from Mexico, California, and the mid West United States. We are one of the most at risk for food insecurity um, in terms of a region in the, in the country. And I was really surprised about that. And that's why so many people are advocating for regional and local economies. Like, how can you be secure as a, as a country when you can't produce the own goods that you need to survive? When you can't produce the food to eat? When you can't get paper clips because trade has shut down? How, how does that translate to national security? It doesn't, but it does, I guess, in, in, a, in a very short frame of time where everything is working smoothly, it, it does translate to great boons for the stock market like you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to go back to the, to the beginning part of this story in China, where this initial disease infection happened, where um, immediately things started being quarantined. Well, not immediately, but after a couple of weeks, in, and it was very obvious things were getting out of control. China started quarantining huge regions of their nation. And a large part of that meant restricting people's personal ability to travel, but also keeping them out of workplaces. So a lot of factories shut down and China also has huge amounts of migrant labor. So even if your factory was in a non-affected part of the nation, it would turn out that a lot of your employees were you know, living in Wuhan, whatever, and now they can't get to your factory and your factory can't run because it's only designed to be built with X number percentage of, of people actually working in there. So what we've seen is interesting in that the disease correlated very strongly with Chinese New Year, which is a two week long celebration in China. It's, it's one of the largest migrations of people in the world. Basically, all business in China shuts down. People leave their factories that are on the coast where it's easy to ship. They go back home to their oftentimes more rural villages. They visit family and then they go back to the factories and, and production picks back up. And, and you'll, if you work in supply chains or you work in manufacturing or, or anything that, that sources either intermediate goods or final products from China, then you know this is coming. You schedule around it. Um, you know, okay, the factory's going to be shut down for two weeks. So we'll make an extra order before this happens and then we'll make a large order after and, and we'll be fine. You know, we, we can tie ourselves over. So it was actually fortunate that it happened over this for a lot of American businesses, not so fortunate for the spread of the disease, but it did mean that that the impacts of the supply chain disruption were pushed off two to four weeks, which is that extra order period that, that businesses around the world made in order to tide them over to Lunar New Year. But uh, that has come and gone. And so now we are seeing a lot of factories in China that are staffed at best 40%, with some as low as 30 or 10%. They're unable to produce goods. Uh, we are seeing the lowest amount of goods shipping across basically the entire world since the financial crisis, and at some points even lower than that in 2008. This is a global supply chain disaster. A lot of products just can't be made, especially ones that source primarily 
or entirely from China. And so China produces obviously a huge amount of goods, but this especially affects certain areas, electronics, um, intermediate goods, especially a lot of metals, rubbers, a lot of final home goods are affected, lighting products, fixtures. China produces 60% of the world's pottery. All of this stuff is cut off and, and either completely unavailable or available at very dramatically lower percentages at much higher prices. So then you start seeing these knockoff effects where, so I'm a small business in Boston and I'm Daniel's friend and I have a product that requires some weird thing that's made in China. And now I can't sell my products. So I have to either decide, do I have enough cash flow to wait this out and hope that it resolves itself and doesn't get worse? Or do I need to resource my uh, manufacturing goods somewhere else and probably pay more money for that because it's not using exploited, cheap, globalized Chinese labor and also have to pay extra money to get this done ASAP. And then also know, knowing that other people are going to be doing the same thing, have to compete with their prices. So everything's going to jack up. Can I survive that price shock? Or, you, you know, all of these things start adding up. And then if my business goes bankrupt and the other businesses that I pull from start going bankrupt, and you can very quickly see how a small splinter at the basis of this supply chain can start causing economic shocks around the world. This is maybe the trigger that could cause that recession that we've been saying probably coming for years now. The world global economy is very weak at the moment outside of a lot of the stock markets, which are being juiced by federal banks around the world, whether it's Bank of Japan, uh, the U.S. Fed or, you know, whatever uh, equivalent is in that nation stock market. Germany's on the edge of recession. China is certainly going to be in recession at this point. The United States uh, looks like this could get out of control. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Why? But uh, this very quickly you can start realizing if, if small sections of this chain go out of business, then people are finding themselves without the ability to have an income, the ability to buy things. And that starts causing other shocks. So now their consumer products that they would buy are being impacted. They're, they're tightening their belt, trying to rein in you know, their, their purchases, and the entire economy begins to contract because of this. It doesn't take much to do this. And this is a conversation where only China is affected. There are plenty of businesses that don't have supply chains, either intermediate goods or final products that are sourced from China, but we're seeing the explosion of this disease worldwide. And while the numbers are still low, uh, there are regions that are already shutting down. Today in Italy, a lot of airlines said that they're banning flights to Milan, for example, until April 26. Uh, Northern Italy is finding itself quarantined, shut down, and cut off from much of the rest of Europe and Italy. This is a region that is heavily tourist dependent. They are finding themselves cut out of that in the beginning of the peak tour season. What effects is this going to have? How can people weather themselves without any money coming in for the next two months, basically? That is going to cause dramatic regional effects that'll splinter out from there. And this is, again, just two regions. So now as this spreads and moves around the world, you're going to start seeing these local regional shocks that ripple out from there. And you have local recessions that quickly turn into global recessions because of this connected globalized economy. This is the same thing that's happening in the ocean when we kill all the, the very bottom parts of the food chain there and everything larger than that starts to die. Well, the same thing here in the global economy is occurring. And this is the real danger of a pandemic. Even if you never get sick, no one you know gets sick. If, they're, if you don't die, whatever, the economic effects can be far, far more deadly than the actual impact of the disease on human lives. Look, for example, too, on the, the, these unforeseen things. So some of the controls going on in China are limiting people from moving around. 
If I'm a Chinese beekeeper, this is the time of the year when I'm moving my hives around the nation in order to bring them where the flowers are blooming to begin the pollination process of large crops. And China grows a huge amount of the fruits and vegetables for not just the nation itself, but for export around the world, including the United States, including much of Europe. Right now, these beekeepers aren't allowed to move their hives. So they're stuck in one place, and the blooms that are happening in these places aren't enough to keep their hives alive. So huge amounts of these hives are currently starving to death because they can't move to where they need to be in order to gather the nectar necessary for their survival of the hive. Now you're seeing something that's very, a very minor effect. People aren't allowed to, to drive around, okay? Who would expect that that little action could be dramatically affecting the cost of crops and the availability of fruits and vegetables all across the world? These are the types of unforeseen knockoff effects that are so dangerous in these events. But if I'm in a, a government here, I either have to decide, do we risk spreading this disease that can destroy our healthcare system and kill hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And epidemiologists, a famous Harvard epidemiologist, in particular in the United States, estimates that an unquarantined um, COVID-19 loose in the United States could kill 5 million people easily, and that number could be higher. So are you going to risk you know, these types of deaths, these, these huge Holocaust-level amounts of deaths for the protection of certain parts of your economy? This is a hard trade-off to make and something that there are no good right answers for. Because those economic impacts will also result in the deaths of people when they can't pay their rent, when they can't afford food, when crops and other things are rotting in the fields or were never planted in the first place. This is how things spiral. Uh, some of these other knock-on effects in areas that are quarantined, people are basically prevented from going to work, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm an American and, and China and Italy... And Korea, for example, as I mentioned, have much more robust social protection. So it's not as big of an issue in those places. But in the United States, this hellhole of, of individual responsibility, telling somebody they can't go to work for four to six weeks because an area is quarantined, for a lot of people, that means homelessness. For a lot of people, that means no food on the table. 40% of Americans don't have $400 ready for an emergency. And not being able to work for four to six weeks is absolutely that type of emergency. And that's considering that they don't need healthcare or other unforeseen costs during that period. That's just if everything is going fine for them. In Japan, they just closed all schools for the next month. In the United States, schools are, uh, in large part, a glorified form of daycare. And no disrespect to my many teacher friends, but that is just sort of one of the facts that we have to deal with in terms of administration and school systems and the larger function that a lot of people see schools having in our society. Um, and we'll get to an episode on schooling and the disaster that it is and has become uh, at another point in time. But imagine if a, a city, uh, New York, um, Seattle, because uh, things are, are spiraling in Washington right now, were forced to close their schools for a month. Imagine what that would do to single parents. Imagine what that would do to people who depend on these schools providing the daycare while they go out and earn whatever they need to keep food on the table for them and their children, to keep a roof over their heads. Now that's gone. If you have a young child, you have to make a choice. Do I leave this child at home by themselves? Do I try and find a babysitter that I can't pay for? Do I put them in some sort of daycare that's definitely going to be crazy expensive with this huge supply demand crisis coming up? 
this is another economic disaster. But the other side of it is, well, okay, are we just going to let these kids get sick and spread the diseases among each other? And an interesting side note as well, Daniel, there have been zero documented cases of children zero to nine dying from COVID-19 so far. Um, but kids are excellent at spreading diseases. So we definitely don't want to let this get into schools. These are the types of unforeseen consequences, the real types of dangers that exist in a pandemic like this. This is why starting about a month ago, I was telling some friends, hey, you know, I don't want to scare you. I don't think anything's going to happen, but you should maybe start making sure you have some extra, you know, non-perishable foods, some extra toilet paper, because there is a small, but not completely unrealistic chance that in two or three months, you might be told that you're not allowed to leave your house for two weeks or four weeks or something. And that's what happened in China. That's what's happened in some of these places where toilet paper, other products like this are literally worth their weight in gold because people aren't allowed to go out and get it. The, the factories that produce it don't have any workers because they're all quarantined at home. Things like this are why making sure you have uh, just you know a little bit of extra stuff isn't a terrible idea. I would not personally be concerned about trying to go on eBay and spend $500 on some fucking scalpers mask purchase, but I would make sure you have some extra cans of food, some extra toilet paper, things that, that you would miss if you weren't allowed to leave the house. Well, I think you made a good point just backing up a couple of steps about the different ways countries take care of their citizens. I think it was interesting how you said in China, People who are stuck at home, maybe not so bad for their livelihoods. Right. So there's a, there's a lot more. Um, there's rent freezes. There's there's a rent abatement. Um, there's guarantees of you're going to be paid for this. There's also um, the infrastructure there is a lot better for schools. So while kids aren't allowed to go to school, there is um, almost instantly popped up online learning classes that are available that are administered by local governments in the state in order to make sure kids, even though they're not attending a a building with a bunch of other kids in it are still learning and, and, and moving forward. The United States is not ready for that at all. We don't have any of the infrastructure and we also don't have the nimbleness that one of those, unfortunately, really top-down authoritarian structures affords a nation like China. Though we are tending more towards that authoritarianism, it is not constructive for that type of work. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, sure, top-down structures enable mass deployment of new initiatives like this, but it's not like we don't need authoritarianism to respond oh, to something absolutely. like this. If we had free housing for people, if we had free healthcare for people, if we had free education for people, right. then the precarity that so many people are in would not add to the risk that this type of thing would have on our economy and, and our well-being. I mean, just think about how many people make their entire livelihood from the gig economy. When all you do to pay your bills, because it's the only option, is to drive for some phone app or mm -hmm. you know work for some target app that is your boss and can fire you at any time and you don't have any benefits, you don't have a salary, you just get paid when you work. And we don't have rent freezes mm -hmm. and everyone has to pay for their housing to a landlord that takes 30% of their income. Now it's a problem when we're stuck at home, right? Right. And, and for this, this type of infection where being in the close proximity to other people is the worst thing possible, the United States come to work at any cost culture and the, the lack of sick time, especially like you said, with those gig economy sort of jobs where there is no sick pay. People just work through it because that's the only choice they have. And in doing so, spread this disease and make it worse. So 
in a nation like China, in a nation like Italy, there are alternatives to this. But here, your choice when it comes down to it will be work and get everyone sick or potentially get sick yourself or stay home and end up homeless, <laughs> which is why I am concerned personally about what this could spiral into in the United States. And there is some hope that as temperatures increase, as the UV increases, as days get longer, that uh, the disease will not be as bad. But there's also potential that this might turn into sort of a, a yearly thing like the flu virus, especially since that vaccine, which is a new type of vaccine anyway, is not expected to be um, in any sort of, of usable state for 12 to 18 months and also will cost who knows how much money and uh, will be who knows how available. But all of this stuff is not unprecedented. Um, people sort of realized this was coming. There was famously last year, October 2019, something called Event 201, which was, uh, and conspiracy theorists love this, a, a roundtable discussion put on by some groups like uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum, that hosted a roundtable discussion between experts of business, of health, of uh, government, about how the world should respond to a severe pandemic, very similar to the one that we're seeing right now. And when I was reading some of the results of this, what they came to decide, I was initially sort of frustrated because there was a, a big focus on prioritizing the economies of the world's nations above the initial healthcare or quarantining of this pandemic. And that seems like the wrong choice. It seems like a very cold calculating choice, right? Where we're going to sacrifice people's lives and stick our head in the sand and tell the media not to cover this or that everything is fine so that the economy functions as, as regular for as long as possible until we can't deny it anymore. And the idea was that by doing this, they'd be able to juice an economy and, and, and keep producing things and keep generating tax income and, and other income as long as possible so that when the pandemic can't be ignored anymore, there's the most resources available to, to fight it. And when it's put in those terms, it sounds fucking stupid because it is stupid. But when you put it in terms of economic disruption causes its own death. It's its own form of pandemic, right? So, so you have two forms of pandemic. You have the actual disease and then the economic yeah. knock-on effects. And both can be just as deadly in a nation that doesn't have good health care and a nation that doesn't have good social care. And the United States is both of those things. The vaccinations that other countries have given themselves against these types of effects around the world are very effective. But here, because of our stupidity, and because of our denial of giving ourselves nice things for whatever stupid fucking reason, we are not vaccinated against this type of pandemic, economic or health related. The best thing to do to defeat COVID-19 or any other pandemic is to be in good health, to be fit and not have pre-existing conditions and to be generally healthy. And the best way to keep people generally healthy is to have a healthcare system that is available and accessible to everyone. Guess what? The United States doesn't have that. And so all of those things. Yeah. So we primed ourselves for this this situation. And and the other half of it, that economic pandemic, we are the probably most susceptible in the entire world to this because we're so unprepared. We don't have any savings. We don't have uh, any sort of recourse, things to fall back. Um, and so some politicians have recognized this. They've introduced bills to say, okay, if this happens, you know, let's have some sort of loans for small businesses to keep them alive and like shit like that. But they're very stupid, means-tested sort of things. Yeah, like uh, our country will allow you to live in the midst of a health pandemic so long as you're willing to uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and start a taxi business. Yeah. Um, like, it's just dumb fucking shit. And, and I, don't, I don't know why everyone is so 
convinced that they just have to make things as miserable for themselves as, as possible. Like, not everything has to suck, y'all. Healthcare really does suck in America, David. I, I've been trying to get a doctor for a while now, and I don't think I'm like a dumb person or, you know, I feel like I have some intelligence, but I've been struggling to be completely honest <laughs> with you because, I mean, I moved up here six or seven months ago, whatever it was. So I've been, you know, I had to find a new health insurance plan. I don't have a lot of income right now. So I got on the mass health uh, state supplied healthcare, which is good. But then it was like, okay, I, I got on the healthcare, which took a while. Then I got a card in the mail and I was like, okay, this means I have health insurance. But then I found out, no, well, maybe I have the insurance, but I have to pick a plan. And then, so I tried to find a plan. It was confusing. I got on the phone. Someone helped me find a plan. But the plan is only good for a certain region. And then once you have the plan, now you have to pick a provider. But not all providers are accepting new patients. So I have to find like, okay, what kind of doctor do I need? Uh, where are the doctors around me? Then I have to find out if they're accepting new patients. Then once I figure that out, then I have to call back my main insurance provider to say, okay, this is the provider I want. So I went through all of that and then I waited too long, like I waited two months or whatever. And I was like, man, I should really go to the doctor. So I called this doctor that I was uh, assigned and they don't accept new patients anymore. So, so I'm like, well, now I have to get a new provider. So I had to go back onto the internet to find a new provider, go through the whole thing. And two weeks ago, David, I calculated my work hours and I was working. I worked 62 hours a couple weeks ago. So the whole time I'm trying to do this, the only time I have to do this, I'm in the car. So when I commute to work <laughs> and when I commute home, I have to leave work early at like 3.30 because some of the doctor's offices close at 4. So I'm in my car, like looking up doctor's numbers. This is the type of like, uh, what do you say? Like the spinoff effect or the compounding? Like yeah, knockoff. The fact that healthcare, yeah, the knockoff effect. So the, the fact that healthcare sucks in this country is the reason why I'm not a safe driver when I'm trying to get on the phone with a healthcare provider at the only small window I can when I'm working. And it made, man, I feel for anyone who has kids or, you know, single parents out there. I don't know how you do it. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm here by myself, which maybe it would be easier if I had someone helping me, but I don't know. Did I say knock off effect? Because it's knock on effect. Oh, knock on effect. I fucked up. I've been saying it wrong this entire episode. Yeah, I just feel for anyone who's trying to juggle working full time while taking care of kids with having no health insurance or very expensive health insurance. And there's actually, you know, what's interesting in, in the communities that I'm working with my nonprofit, can't remember what it's called. It's like a cliff effect, but we're working in this area that has high poverty. We've tried to pay some people from the community to help involve them in some kind of community participatory initiative. And what some people have said is, well, look, I can't get paid much more money because if I make, you know, $100 or $200 more, I'm going to lose my benefits and then I'm going to have to pay 10 times more for my bills. And there's this term for it. I don't remember exactly what it is. Maybe it's the cliff effect, but where we have people locked in poverty because if they make any more money, their bills suddenly skyrocket. So they're actually better off making less money and only subsisting on whatever services or, or benefits they can get from public assistance. And well, I guess that's a whole nother story. But yeah, I just want to say that healthcare really does suck in this country. 
Nobody likes the private insurance market. No one likes the health insurance options we have. What we want as people is to choose our own doctor, whatever doctor we want, to be able to go to any doctor and not deal with all this bureaucratic, I'm on the phone 24-7 just so I can have someone tell me to go onto a website that is frankly confusing even for me as someone who sits on computers all day. I'm sorry. I don't know how people do it. That's all I'm saying. So yeah, I can't wait for the this uh, virus to come to the United States, I guess is what I'm saying. What the fuck? Sarcastically. So, so yeah, I guess I'm not really looking forward to uh, whatever impact this virus is going to have on the United States, David. And I, I know most listeners to this show understand this, but like, please tell your family and friends that like, they don't have to just go bankrupt every time they go to the doctor. You know, there are other options. We have these options available to us. People are running for president right now based on these other options. So you should go out there and fucking support them and support the ones that actually are talking about doing this to the full extent of what it means, which is, of course, only at this moment, Bernie Sanders. So uh, officially, I would like to officially endorse Bernie for president. Um, I'm not an electoralist, but I have given at this point uh, a lot to Bernie and, and helped his campaign with some other um, other non-monetary work. So yeah, I actually saw Bernie Sanders in person yesterday. He was in Boston. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't shake his hand, but you know, cause I don't want to spread coronavirus, but I did yeah, stay healthy, Bernie. see him from afar. Yeah. I can't, I can't afford to get him sick. Speaking you know? of people getting sick right now, the Pope is sick with a cold and canceling all sorts of stuff. And, um, there's rumors it's coronavirus, but who knows? Who knows? One of the talking points that Bernie had was Free healthcare for all, no out-of-pocket expenses, no co-payment, and no one pays more than $200 a year for medication. So, All of which would do a huge amount to fight COVID-19 as well as any other future pandemics. But how is the wealthiest country in the world going to pay for it, David? Uh, I don't know. But I got an idea. Let's, let's buy some more bombs, bro. Yeah, yeah $1.3 trillion on weapons of mass destruction. That's... That that's been working for us pretty well so far. Yeah, no problem. Um, I, I feel like I'm sort of lost with the rest of the stuff I wanted to cover. I'm sure there's more, but I puked out a lot of stuff here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start wrapping up this, this COVID-19 um, talk. I guess the last part I should focus on here is, is what it might look like, the spread that, that we're seeing. It, every day it's a new country pops up in. And remember, the countries that you see it in, it's probably already been there for weeks before. Uh, we just haven't caught it yet. And the official numbers are, you can be assured, a fraction of what the actual number of infected people are. The United States announced its first community-caught instance of COVID-19 a couple days ago, uh, somebody in Washington. We also had our first death from COVID-19, another resident in Washington state. But genetic sequencing of the COVID-19 that these individuals have, have shown that it's probably been here for at least six weeks prior to them catching it. So it's been here. It's already causing trouble in some areas, and it's spreading all around the country. So this is something we're going to have to deal with. Sticking our head in the sand, but not testing for it doesn't make it not appear. It just negatively affects our ability to prepare and react to it. And I'm happy to see that that sentiment is changing, this awareness that we can't pretend it's not going to be an issue. But uh, remember that the health component of this is only a small part of the larger threat that this virus and that any pandemic exhibits. And that even if you never get sick, you should start preparing for economic disruption. 
because it doesn't take a lot for the media to spin into fear and for the government to spin into fear. And, and even if there aren't any necessarily quarantines, the supply chain disruption in the United States and other nations in China, as well as people just fucking panicking and acting like idiots, could mean that some things are hard to get your hands on. Uh, so start preparing. Be prepared. Yeah, I don't know how to follow that up, David. That's pretty depressing. Well, uh, we will keep updating if you have questions, if you have updates. I would I would love to see everyone share them with us on our Discord. It's the best way to reach out. There's a link to that on our website, ashesashes.org, just community Discord. Um, and there's already been a little bit of COVID-19 talk. We've had some listeners evacuate from parts of northern Italy where they were in because of it. So uh, there is global awareness and uh, we would love to have your input, and we'll try to answer your questions as well. David, I, I don't have anything to add to this. You carried us on this show. No, it's just I've spent too much time reading on this. So uh, like I said, though, if anybody has any questions, if you want to look at some of the sources, that WHO report or other things related to coronavirus, you can find all that information as well as a full transcript of this episode and almost every episode on our website at ashesashes.org. As always, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, sharing these stories and thoughts and conversations with the people around you, or visiting us at patreon.com slash ashesashescast, where you can send us some financial love, and every couple months we'll send you a a sticker designed by an artist that we know or don't know. But, I mean, we know them after, we, after they did the artwork for us. Oh, uh, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We appreciate it. And we will read them. We also have a phone number you can call and leave voice messages on. That number is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-992. 7437. You can give us a call. It's an American number. If you're international and you want to leave a voice message, uh, you can do so by recording yourself and sending it to our email. At some point, we may make a clip show. Also, we just like hearing everybody's thoughts and voices and stories. So uh, give us a ring. Uh, leave us something fun. And if that is not your cup of tea, we are on basically every social media posting memes, news stories, and general conversations. You can find all of those at Ashes Ashes Cast, as well as the subreddit r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. And as mentioned, we have an enormous, amazing Discord community of thinkers, researchers, and generally anxious people all around the world. You can find a link to that on our website, ashesashes.org. Just click community and then Discord. You'll find the invitation there. We'd also like to thank our associate producer, John Fitzgerald. Thank you. Next week will be episode 100. Can, can you, ding, ding, can you ding, believe ding, it? Ding, ding. 100 episodes. No. Well, we're going to do something believe. fun for that. Um, I, I hope it's fun. Take all the Patreon money and go to... Uh, Wuhan. Cuba. Oh, that's a better option. So we'll be broadcasting straight from the beach, uh, drinking Coronas. And getting our relax on. Relax. But no, not really. <laughs> No, we'll really. just be sitting in our apartments being anxious about whatever with the quarantines going on. So, until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.
Fuck you, I'm done.